Hello and welcome to this episode of Women in Finance podcast. If you're new to the show, I hope you remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. My guest today is Alexandra McGuigan, the Global Development Director for 100 Women in Finance, formerly known as 100 Women in Hedge Funds, a global industry association for professionals who work in the alternative investment and broader finance industry. You can listen to Alexandra speak about the commendable and very ambitious mission of the organization and also about her own work with fund managers in the industry to help advance those goals. A sales and marketing strategist with a specialization in alternative investments, Alexandra has successfully helped international fund managers navigate and develop a presence in the APEC region. Based in Singapore, but a native of Australia, Alexandra priorly held senior roles at Tribeca Investment Partners, Shed Enterprises, and Investec, where she was responsible for developing and implementing sales and marketing strategy for products and new business opportunities. Alexandra started her career in asset management at BNY Mellon Asset Management. She's a chartered alternative investment analyst and a Kaya Singapore chapter executive. I very much enjoyed speaking with Alexandra about 100 women in finance, the institutional investing landscape in Australia, but also listen to her valuable insights on how to draw on all skills you have, such as communication or acting to build a successful career in finance. Alexandra also shares why learning what you do not want to do is just as important, if not more, than learning what you do want to do. Please enjoy my conversation with Alexandra McGuigan. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Let's start at the very beginning with your story and how you made your way to the world of finance. So my, my story is probably going to be a little bit different to other people that you're going to interview on this podcast because it's a little bit windy and twisted. But I was very good at maths. I remember recently thinking about this in sort of preparation of how I would tell this story. And in primary school, I was very good at maths. And I went for my high school interview and I remember the principal saying, what subjects do you like? And I just said, just maths. I only like maths. And so with the entry test, I was put into an accelerated class which actually ended up being of a big disadvantage or it changed my thinking because I had a not, let's just say the teacher wasn't the best and maybe it was too accelerated for me, but I didn't do very well and I lost my confidence and I was put back in the regular class. Basically, I think that looking back on this, I kind of channeled it and said, oh, well, I'm not very good at this. I'm just going to do something else. And so I put all of my energy into the arts and English and did art, drama and Funnily enough, I wanted to be an actress. I mean, I suppose that it's because it looks glamorous and that's what we see on the magazines and, and it looks kind of cool. And I remember I remember reading a magazine article and this sort of talks to, to my interest in travel, but I remember reading a magazine article and there, there was, it was an interview with a model, I think, and she talked about how she used to carry her passport around in her handbag. And so I used to carry my passport to and from school, even though I was in Australia and, and only catching the train to King's Cross. But I think that I've always had in my mind that I wanted to have an international career. Fast forward to my final year of school, I was 100% focused on becoming an actress and I tried out for a very famous acting school in Australia called NIDA, which is where Kate Blanchett and Mel Gibson trained. I was quite young for that year, so I was 17 and I got into what's called the Young Actors Studio. They, they consider it a bit of a feeder course and it's a one-year course. And I spent my first year at university every Sunday from 9am till 5pm while everybody was else out partying and all of that kind of stuff, studying acting at, at NIDA. 
And then to my big disappointment and probably to the relief of my father, I never actually made it to NIDA. So I was like, all right, well, what else am I going to do? So I'd gotten into a course at university called Media and Communications. I decided that I'd go and work for fashion magazines because that also looked pretty glamorous. Then I went and I did some work experience at some fashion magazines and it turned out that it is particularly unglamorous when you're at the bottom of the rank. And so I decided I would not work in fashion. So then I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went on an exchange. I traveled a bit. I went to Cornell, traveled the world for a year, came back, worked in the wine industry, which was really fun, but it still wasn't really what I wanted to do. So my dad said, well, you should consider doing an MBA. And that's what I did. I was quite young to do an MBA. I was 24 at the time, but it was really foundational for me. So I ended up going to university called UTS and it was called a limited work experience MBA. So they made you do eight core subjects. And that was when actually I found finance again. I ended up doing really well in economics and finance. And I wouldn't have known that because I probably wouldn't have given it a try with the feelings that I'd had of what I thought were my past failings when I was at school. And I actually found out that I was really good at it. So then I decided that I was going to go overseas and study again overseas and I needed some more money to do that. And so I thought, (laughs) this is true. I thought, where do people make money? In finance. So I redid my CV and I applied for the only job that I was qualified to apply for in a finance firm and that was an executive assistant. And I got a job working for this amazing guy who has been a lifelong mentor now and he took me under his wing and he said look you're overqualified for this job but if you do it and you do it really well I'll teach you how to run a business and he did so basically I got to shadow him for two years and he used to say that while I was doing my MBA at university I was getting an MBA in life working for him he was this amazing sales guy and always doing these glamorous things and I I guess the glamorous thing is part of what makes me tick and I wanted to be like him because he was always traveling around the world he was meeting amazing people doing cool stuff and yeah so I wanted to be like him and then I I went overseas I came back and I reached out to all my networks and and was like look I'm looking for a job in finance and so that's when I got my break I started working at Investec in the private bank but still wanted to do this fundraising for asset managers and kept pursuing it and then got a role in institutional business at Shed Enterprises which is where I started my sales role. Anyway, I've continued on in that path, but that was the long and windy way that I made it there. What a fantastic story. I'd like to ask you about some key skills or something you think you learned in those early years, pursuing what you know or you already knew early on that you don't want to do. What do you think were some things you learned that you leveraged on later in life? So I use my acting training every day. Acting is a lot about presentation, how you speak, understanding materials and putting in the work prior to to doing something. So really understanding the content and being able to talk to it rather than reading a presentation. So those skills are, are incredibly valuable. The fashion side of things, I learned that I wanted to make enough money to do what I wanted to do with my life and and money isn't everything, but it helps you to achieve things that you might want to do and really earning nothing to to work really hard wasn't 
the path I wanted to go down. But then the other thing from, from the fashion side of things is, is really just how to present yourself. And this is not necessarily to be fashionable, but people judge you within the first 10 seconds of seeing you. And so what is that impression that you want to make? What do you want them to take away from how they see you? And if you dress professionally and present yourself in a professional manner, then that's the response that people will have to you. So I think that's quite important for people coming in to the industry. Do you think that's still as relevant today in this all virtual world? Everyone is attending meetings over Zoom. There's less travel, less in-person meetings. Look, I don't think it's everything, but I think that it helps you to project your best self, right? So if I have an important meeting and this makes me feel good, it's not the same for everybody else. And I'm not suggesting that people follow this exact path, but I blow dry my hair and I put some makeup on and, and I feel better and more confident. And so yes, I think it does matter. It does help, but it's not the be all and end all. Sometimes just getting on the call is more important than doing your hair. <laughs> Now, coming back to your MBA experience, you already highlighted that you rediscovered your passion for finance. And I think that's the best thing anyone can hope from an MBA already. But talk a bit more about the experience. Was the timing right to do something like that? Would you have done it differently? For me, it was foundational. So as we've established, I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I needed exposure to greater things so I could find some other areas that I was good at and that I was interested in and, and maybe that I wanted to go down the path of. It also highlighted some of the things that I didn't want to do in a business sense, which was the operations side of things. That's not something that really took my fancy, but I did have exposure to it. And I think it's just as important to understand what you don't want to do as what you do want to do in terms of making effective career decisions. So for me, it was at the perfect time because I wasn't lost, but I, I needed a bit more direction. By doing all of that and doing the little bit longer course and covering more subjects, it just really expanded my toolkit and my understanding of business. And then I ended up spending a year in France. And so I traveled a bit more, which was excellent. And that also gives you a different perspective, I think, understanding the way different cultures work. Obviously, there, there's the personal experience and then there's the educational experience when you're doing some time abroad. But I think that any time spent traveling and with different cultures is always additive. No, I wouldn't have changed a thing. It was wonderful. Speaking a bit more about your early mentorship experience with this C-level executive, can you talk a bit about some concrete lessons or something concretely you learned during that time? And also, how do you think you could have learned those things had it not been for this very timely and great encounter with this person? Working in that capacity as an executive assistant, I had to be extremely organized and know which meetings were more important, which things could be moved, managing a schedule of somebody who was traveling around the world, and then also managing the schedules of important portfolio managers coming to Australia. And one of the lessons that I really learned from him was how to speak to people and how to write emails, because the way that we write often can be quite quite different to the way that it is received. It might sound overly flowery or overly energetic, but you never know what mood the person who reads something is going to be in. And with emails, you take the emotion 
out of it or the tone out of it. So in order to exhibit that, you need to craft something into the language so someone can understand the tone that you're meaning things with. Now, this can always be misconstrued. I think that it's always important to at least be thoughtful about how it might be received, particularly if it's from someone that doesn't know you or anything like that. And then I'll, I'll never forget one day. So I'd come from the wine industry. Let's just say I wasn't particularly formal in my attire, but he was very encouraging and he didn't really ever tell me what to do, but someone said, oh, you should get a suit. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll get it. I'll get a suit. And I remember coming in with my, my new suit and on the first day, and I was always in the office before him. And I remember him, him walking past and looking at me and then going, I'd give you a hundred million dollars today. And then just walking to his office. And I was like, wow, I feel so professional in my suit. Yeah. And it was just a big confidence boost. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of looking professional and feeling the part. I think that you want to present yourself in a way that makes you feel the best. So you can do your best job and put, you put the best foot forward. And if you feel confident and happy in yourself, then you will perform best. So he taught me that. And it's something I think about a lot. How do you think you could have learned those things in a different way had it not been through this mentorship relationship? A lot of this stuff would have probably been trial and error, mm -hmm. speaking to somebody in a way that wasn't taken very well and then having to think about it and learn from the lessons. I think that a lot of this stuff people can definitely learn and, and try and be cognizant of things that are going on around them. But I was in a very fortunate position to have someone who would give me feedback, but in, in a constructive and a positive way, which was the style that I obviously worked best with. So you got your big break. You are where you wanted to be. So what were those experiences in working with different fund managers and on the fundraising side? Just give us more color there. Sure. So Shed Enterprises, and I have to give credit to the owner of, of that organization for giving me my chance because she really did support me. I'd worked with this other company and with this guy, but I actually had no sales experience. So she really gave me my chance, but it, it's a third-party marketing firm. And the, the Australian market's quite unique because of two things. One is the superannuation industry, which is our pension industry. And it's a mandatory amount of money that is taken out of each individual's paycheck and it goes into a superannuation so it goes into a pool of money which is managed by these pension funds it started in the early 90s so the money is huge in Australia that we have for I think it's around a three trillion mark close to that so that's just a huge pot of capital but the geographic location means that it's difficult for people to get there and so there's a number of these third-party marketing firms that then represent big fund managers that may not actually have representation by a third party anywhere else in the world but in Australia because of the geographic location and because of the size of the capital pool they do the company I worked for they specialized in alternatives and representing alternative fund managers and And so it was the most amazing training ground. And I got to work with hedge funds, private equity, infrastructure, fixed income, equities, currency, and literally travel around with these amazing portfolio managers who were managing billions of dollars and just listen and absorb and get to understand bits and pieces about how they invest, the strategy, why they would invest that way, et cetera. So that was really an amazing experience. And then after that, after being with them for three and a half years, I got headhunted to go to work for as head of investor relations for a boutique Australian fund 
And I really wanted to do that because I wanted to expand my remit geographically. And so I wanted to sell funds, not just in Australia, but in Asia and possibly around the world. And then I also wanted to work within a fund manager so I could actually get better understanding of the mechanisms of how they actually invest in the process within the manager, because I was always a little bit removed as the sales and marketing distribution Is there also an aspect of consolidating learning somehow when you are the in-house investor relations? I assume you know the strategy and everything around it inside out as opposed to having a very broad exposure. Can you say that? Yes and no. It depends if you work for a big firm like BlackRock and you have a whole spectrum of products to work across. Or if you work for a boutique fund manager, certainly you have a better understanding of the strategies. And as a third-party marketer, because you're only traveling with the, the portfolio managers a couple of times a year for a concentrated period, but for a couple of times a year, you're exposed for a concentrated period, then you don't hear about it again for a while, or you don't get the, the updates and, and understand how things have changed in the portfolio. So, so you are that one step removed, definitely. What would you say are some key traits or what makes a successful investor relations professional? Well, number one, you need to know the subject matter. Now, no one is going to expect you to be as detailed as the portfolio manager, but you need to be able to explain the strategy and what the company's doing and, and the update on, on some of the key positionings, et cetera, in the portfolio, how things have changed. I actually came at it from a, a marketing background as well. So a lot of people in the industry, I think, come from economics and finance backgrounds. But because I'd had the media and communications training and done a lot of work in that space, and actually I ran the marketing department for the retail business at Investec in Australia. And I also worked in the marketing team at the wine company. So thinking about marketing strategy and looking at people like Simon Sinek and Seth Godin and people who, who were not necessarily in the finance industry, but extraordinary marketers, learning those lessons and applying them, I found very useful. And I found that I don't think that many people do it because they come at it from this, this economics finance background. So I think that was a little bit of my secret sauce probably is the way that I approached the problem was different to the way that other people were doing it. And then being organized. So this comes back to the executive assistant thing. I could pack out a schedule. I could contact people. I just ha I had a plan of how I was going to do it and I just kept ticking these little tasks off that I said that I was going to do. Like the idea is really you want to be front of mind when someone is making a buying decision. That is what branding and marketing is about. And if you are front of mind with them at that point in time, then they may consider you amongst a handful of people, which is all you can ask for to begin with, right? And then you have to like pull the levers and, and show that you, that not only is your product good, but that you have better client service, that you are available to speak to them, that you will be able to give them updates that you're accommodating and helpful and people do business with people that they like. So making sure that you have all of those bits and pieces, but it's really about being organized and touching base with people on a regular basis without being annoying because that's, that's a fine line, not being pushy, but being front of mind. And if you can do that, then you will at least be considered for a mandate when it comes up and then some of that stuff is out of your hands. But that is the job of the marketer is to get the call to say that you're being, that you're being considered, I think. Hmm. I made a note to ask you, 
very high level about the alternative space in Australia. So you obviously have a lot of experience and you've been in the market in different roles and you've seen it from different angles. Are there any sort of high level trends or high level development lines you can draw based on your experience? Have, for example, asset classes, certain asset classes developed faster than others? Or do you think, given the size of the market, do you think that there's still space? Are any asset classes overheated any thoughts the australian market is constantly growing and evolving and it's going through somewhat of a consolidation stage at the moment and the regulator as and when that happens the regulator obviously changes their approach to things what we've seen in australia over the last I, don't know, I guess it's 10 years or time that I've been in the market there, is a movement towards lower fees because the people at the end of the day who are the beneficiaries of the returns of investment are people who are saving for retirement. So the mission of the regulator is to make sure that those people are being looked after. But what the consequence of this is, what we've seen is that there has been a move from in the traditional asset classes to, to low fee passive strategy and people have moved along the spectrum and sort of saved their budget, if you will, for the alternatives bucket. Now, there's it's interesting that you ask at this point in time because there, there's actually new regulation that's just come out, which is looking at how superannuation funds are performing. So the benchmark measurement is a mix of equities and fixed income indices, and it doesn't actually take into consideration the benefits of investing in alternatives. So for example, why you might, even though it's expensive, you might put an alternative investment in your portfolio because it has has low correlation to your other assets, whereas this regulation doesn't necessarily solve for that or it doesn't answer as to how alternatives should be considered in this space. And so there's a lot of discussion around actually what's going to happen. But certainly the alternatives bucket has been the bucket where investors have been able to allocate to higher fee skill-based managers because it's in those complex strategies that you really do need the skill of the portfolio manager versus obviously a passive investment in global equities, etc. It is a very interesting time in the market as to what will happen and how people will continue, what type of alternative investment strategy will continue to go into portfolios, etc. Wow, interesting. I'll put some links in the show notes as well to save time for anyone interested in, in the topic. Coming back to your experience with Tribeca. So you were there, you were the head of investor relations. You have made it. <laughs> Why decide to, to move then again and uh, kind of start on your own? Personal reasons, actually. So my husband has a private equity fund and it is based in Singapore. So I left Tribeca at the end of 2017 to just take some time off, really. And then we were going to move to, to Singapore, which we did, but I had a baby. And in between, I was also talking to different fund managers who had been in contact with our sort of marketing strategy, how they can access the market, who they should speak to, etc. And so when I moved to Singapore, I set up that company and I just sort of do a little bit of consulting with international fund managers about accessing capital in APAC region, what it means, how they should go about it, who they might speak to. I think one of the key <laughs> conversations, which is quite difficult to have with some people, is that 
the product is the bread and butter and it has to be a good product. There's just so much competition. Like it just has to be a good product. And that's what the fund manager has to bring. And then if you've got a good product and you have some track record, it needs to be about three years. And for an institutional investor to invest, they probably need to have about a billion dollars, which is difficult for people who are starting out their fund management businesses. But if you look at it from the perspective of the institutional investor, the investors in Australia, so they have to invest 200, 300 million dollars at a time. And if they're going to spend all this time on the due diligence of an investment, they need to secure some additional capacity. So they need to know that the fund manager is going to be there. They need to know that the strategy is not going to be capacity constrained when they want to invest further capital. So there's lots of different conversations and bits and pieces that people, I guess they need to know before they decide to actually start marketing and, and expanding in, in different markets. The APAC region is quite unique as well because each of the countries have different rules and regulations about how to market and what you can do. So there's a lot to know. <laughs> So related to your move to Singapore, you also joined the 100 Women in Finance organization, which used to be 100 Women in Hedge Funds, started out in the US. We actually had Nadine Terman. She was the first guest on the podcast. Can you tell us more about how you joined the organization and just a bit more background on, uh, on the organization and its mission? So 100 Women in Hedge Funds is the largest organization for women working in financial services in the world. Our vision is to have 30% representation of women in investment roles and executive leadership positions by 2040. And our mission is to empower women at every stage of their career. So I'm actually a beneficiary of the amazing things that 100 Women in Finance does for women in finance. I joined as a member in Sydney and I won a scholarship to study the Kaya, do the Kaya designation. And then when I moved to Singapore, I reached out to the network of women that were here in the Singapore chapter or the Singapore location. And they've become some of my best friends. I found that in Australia, a lot of the women that I became very that became my close friends were women who worked in the funds management industry because we had similar experiences, similar aspirations. We were going through the same things at the same time. So it just seemed natural to me to reach out to the community here. And it was a very smooth transition in, in terms of meeting new people who, who were like-minded. So I actually joined 100 Women in Finance as the APAC director, and I was in charge of the three locations that we had. So Singapore, Hong Kong, and Sydney, and working with the committees and making sure that they had everything that they need to put on their events. And then last year, everything happened with COVID and the organization transitioned quite dramatically, actually. And we went from having the 27 locations, 20,000 registered members and 500 volunteers. But what had happened historically was that each of those locations almost acted like a franchise and only the people who were in that location got to benefit from the events that took place. Whereas all of a sudden, when we went digital, and because we were already a virtual office, we didn't really skip a beat in terms of maintaining the, the content. We had almost 27 times the amount of events and they were sent out to the global list. So everybody who was a registered member everywhere in the world got to attend different events from around the world. And we actually had people dialing in at 5am to participate in all different sorts of topics. And it's quite interesting because the best example of, of 
explaining it is that we had someone from the Dublin committee, which is quite a service provider location, said that she joined a session that was put on by the LA committee on music royalties. And she was like, I never, ever would have had access to be able to sit in on an event talking about how to invest in music royalties. And so we really unified our global membership base. And in doing that, we realized the power of the organization. I mean, we knew the power of the organization, but we realized it from actually in terms of uniting people. And so I started as the global development director in February. And my job is to work with the industry to sell our products and services. But when they purchase our products and services, because of our 500 volunteers, we're an extremely lean organization. And that means that we can read invest all of the money, pretty much all of the money that we get from these highly replicable products and services into further initiatives to change the demographics and to help to, to build the pipeline, to retain women in, in that mid-career section when they, they go off to have families, etc. And then also help to get women from a director level to the C-suite. There's a lot of work to do, but it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, and it's for a great purpose. So Yeah, absolutely. How exactly do you work with this women's, is it like a mentorship program or is it support groups depending on the need or how, how does it work in practice? Well, there's two different ways. For our members, we offer things in three pillars. So there's the education pillar. So we offer events for women and, and actually men can become members as well. But, but the genesis of the organization is to help women to build networks in the finance industry because quite often they're the only woman in the room. And that makes it more difficult to have a fulfilling career and it makes it more difficult if you need support and all of this kind of stuff. We, we try and help women to connect, but we have The education pillar, our sort of global webinars, or it might be a fireside chat with a big group of people and, and our membership is highly educated and proficient in their areas in financial services. So these are very much high level educational topics and it could be on investments, it could be a regulatory thing, etc. But but it's very specified. And then the peer engagement pillar, that's where we help women to find peer groups and we break it down by their experience level. So we have early career, mid-career and senior practitioner. And then in the more senior levels, we break it down by job type as well. So we help women who are in investment roles to meet other women in investment roles. We help business development professionals meet other business development professionals, etc. And then finally, the impact pillar. So we have our galas, which has been our fundraising work that we've done for the last 20 years and raised over 55 million US dollars. And that money has historically gone to charitable groups that have similar aligned views to us. But now, since 2019, we had the Vision 3040 that was created by the board and we thought that if we're actually going to change the demographics of the industry, then we need to put all of our muscle behind it. And we created the Impact Collective. So all the money that's raised in the Impact Pillar goes towards the Impact Collective, which is to build the pipeline of young women coming into the industry. So that's pre-career focused. There's committees of women who put on the galas. And then there's also impact committees. And we have a particularly strong one in Singapore, actually. And they go out to schools and universities. And they basically just women, are female members, and they talk about their careers in finance, and they inspire girls into careers in finance as well. So that's what we offer the members. 
What I actually do is more talk to the industry. So similar to what I've been doing before, but rather than necessarily just the investment team, I'm talking to the CEOs, I'm talking to the head of diversity, I'm talking to the head of sales, et cetera, because we have solutions across the business units. And so we're providing products and services to the industry that they would be budgeting for anyway. And we want to be seen as a service provider in that because then essentially we're an impact investment because the money that we then get from that, we will reinvest into further initiatives. So it's the first time that we've done it like this and it's pretty exciting. We've had, I just put some numbers together the other day and I think that I've been in contact with since March, 184 companies and I've had 96 meetings. So that's quite a lot. But it's good. It seems like a time in the market where people, you know, they want change. And we're not just about gender diversity. We're about supporting all minorities and getting diverse teams at the top. So, so yeah, that's the work that we're doing. So how does one become a member? Just register via the website or is there a particular process? Yeah. So if you want to sign up as an individual member, you can go to 100women.org and you can just sign up. There's a membership page. You can either sign up as a premium standard or a student member, or if you want your organization to sign up for corporate membership or find out more about corporate sponsorship, then you can get in touch with me and I can show you what we have. Fantastic. So I was planning to ask you about your contact and how should people reach out at, at the end. So that's, I think, one of the key topics why people should reach out. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I'm always happy to talk to because I had a lot of help along the way in my career. So I'm always happy for people to reach out to me and have a chat about their careers or whatever, because I think that we do need visible role models in order to encourage women into the industry. And as, as you can mm -hmm. see, my path was not clear and so sometimes you just need to have someone to talk to about what might be good and what might, might not be a great decision and so I'm always very willing to do that for certainly the next generation and you can reach out to me via LinkedIn is probably the easiest and then we can take the conversation wherever it needs to go. <laughs> That's also the genesis of this podcast and <laughs> why it came to be so it's fantastic. I'll link to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Great. Yeah, wonderful. Coming back to 100 women in, in finance, the other thing I wanted to ask you is since you work with the industry, so you still have the finger on, on the pulse on how the industry sees these topics, what are your observations in relation to that? Is there really a change happening, a, a shift in, in perspective and in view? Does the industry realize what potential more diverse representation has? So diverse, again, not only in terms of gender, but also in terms of minorities and people with the non-traditional background, so to say? Or is it something that is driven top-down by investors or just because, you know, the market is talking about these topics, managers have to kind of get in line and do what everyone else is doing? Oh, I think it's a bit of everything. Let's start with the research, right? So it's irrefutable, the research that shows that diverse teams perform better. And the reason that they do perform better is because you eliminate blind spots. So if you have people who, who've had different life experiences and come from the CEO of Stable Asset Management always says it's cognitive 
difference that makes the difference, right? So if you have people from different races who all attended Harvard, they are still going to think the same. So you need to have people from different life experiences, different backgrounds who think about things differently because that is how you get a better outcome. It it makes it a longer, probably more laborious decision-making process because you get to hear the opinions of people that maybe you don't agree with. But what it does is it brings these points that you may not have thought of to the surface And so the group can then make a decision based around thinking of all of these different points in consideration. Ray Dalio is quite famous for for saying that he wants people there to bring up the point that he hasn't thought of. So so that is how in terms that you can internalise it from an investment perspective. The research is irrefutable and there's a tonne of stuff. I, I can actually give you some links to some different diversity research. But in terms of whether or not people are doing it because they really believe it or they're doing it because of social pressure, I don't think it really matters. Does it? <laughs> if people, it's the right thing to do. And if we're forcing some laggards to step up because the social conscience says they have to, well, that's good. That's a good outcome. You know, not everyone's always going to agree with you and, and some people have their own reasons not to. But if we can create at least some kind of tidal wave or a movement that carries along the majority, then we can create change. But this change is going to take a long time, which is why we've set the 2040 goal. I heard on a podcast the other day that the women's suffrage movement, all of the women who started that movement had died by the time that women actually got the first vote. But that doesn't mean that that it was not worth doing because these things are always worth doing because there are they're better outcomes for more people and that is is what the goal is i think i think the other question related to it is why are people doing it and how well or how much do they believe in these initiatives it's also an indication of who is really in charge of this initiatives right inside of their organization is it someone at a c level or is it just a different role they created someone who doesn't sit on any important committee is just a tick the box exercise that's a very important point. What we want to do is make sure that we are engaging with organizations so they are starting to utilize some of our different initiatives so it is not a tick the box exercise and they get to pay their way out of it because that's not good enough. So you're very right to bring that up. I think that historically maybe they put someone in it to look after it in the last couple of years. Things have changed quite dramatically. I try to get an introduction to the sea level because it's much better to get by in at the top and then work out the details with the people who work in HR or in sales or or marketing or whatever. But you're absolutely right to get it to the top of the agenda as something that stays at the top of the agenda for an organization, then you really need to have the people in the decision-making capacity buy into it. And they need to be the ones who say, this is what we're going to do. And they need to lead by example. And so that, that is how we will affect the greatest change, in my opinion. But let's see, we're just trying it now. So we'll see what the outcome is. I guess. What I wa- also wanted to ask you was, since you mentioned it before, the Kaya designation, this came through the 100 Women in Finance, through your, your engagement there and, and the scholarship. I was just wondering, why was it, why did you pursue it? Why was it important for you? So I got to a level where my understanding of the investment products that I was 
talking about was not sufficient, I don't think, for the level of my role. And to continue advancing in my career, I needed to upskill some more. And so that's why I decided to do it. And I have to say, because the alternative areas where I focused, it was the most relevant and career-specific study I've ever done. And it was fantastic. I loved it. It's quite mathematical. You end up have you have to learn like eight pages of formulas and stuff like that. But they're real world examples, which I really quite like. So it's not just maths for algebra's sake, but you're actually working out derivatives pricing and looking at why companies, if you wanted to achieve this outcome, then how you actually have to actually execute a certain trade, etc. I found it fascinating, and I'm now actually a, um, a chapter executive in Singapore. I have a I'm co-hosting a webinar on ESG across asset classes. And so we have three great portfolio managers from, we're looking at equities in the energy transition space with Proxy P. We're looking at ESG infrastructure with Capman. And we're also speaking to the ESG specialists at PIMCO on fixed income. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation across the, the way we talked about some lessons learned and some key skills you have gathered and how, how you learned those, but just an all-encompassing view of your career. What would be some lessons learned? Okay, so all skills are useful, no matter what you do and what path you take. I still use the, the acting skills all the time. Majoring in English, I use my writing skills, I use the number skills and the leadership skills that I've learned from the CEO and executive assistant. So no matter what you're doing, there's something useful that you can learn from that, definitely. Number two, trust your gut. So be open to opportunities as they present themselves to you and others may not see what you see in it. So just trust, trust your instinct and you'll learn to trust it more as you go along but just stay the course and follow your heart in that respect number three learn what you don't want to do uh, <laughs> this is just as important if not more important than what you do want to do because you'll be miserable if you end up getting stuck doing something that you don't want to do persistence pays off so once you finally figure out what you want to do just focus and the path will present itself so you just have to be, as I said, like, like I got ended up coming back from France doing my MBA in the beginning of 2010. It was still the remnants of the financial crisis. No one was hiring a salesperson, particularly one without any experience. So I just reached out to my networks and I got, I was like, I just need a job working for a financial services company. And so I ended up working for Investec at that point, but I still wanted to work for a fund manager in, in fundraising. So I kept talking to people. I kept finding out what people were doing. And then eventually I got my opportunity. So persistence will pay off. And then finally, it's not all about the numbers. So in financial services, there are so many different types of jobs. Yes, you have to be able to do some kind of business and some kind of math at some point in your study career but it's not just about the numbers it's about people it's about companies it's the way the world functions and it's very very exciting and there's just so many different ways that you could get involved that it's definitely worth exploring so so they're my five key points hope that wasn't too many no that was perfectly summarized and put together thank you is there a book that had a significant impact on you 
my mentor, the CEO, gave me a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, I suggest you read it and read it again and again. The examples are quite old, but the lessons never get old. And that really helps you to figure out how to deal with people or stop and pause and not get emotional. Or, or you've got a challenging boss or someone you're challenging to work with. That book is excellent for helping you come up with strategies on, on how to deal with challenging people. And then I'm going to give you two because this one's just so good as well. It's actually a textbook, but it's called Influence Theory and Practice by Robert Cialdini. And he's a psychologist and he focuses on influence, but why we do certain things and why people behave in a certain way. And one of them is that and this is particularly relevant in, in capital raising, is social proof, right? So it's so difficult to get that first $100 million. But once someone else has invested, then other people are likely to invest. So that book really explains why people behave the way that they behave. And if you understand that, then you can navigate around it better. We covered the contacting part. I guess that was it. Alexandra, thank you so, so much for the time and for the insights. It's been a wonderful conversation. As I mentioned, I'll link everything you mentioned, all the resources in the show notes for anyone listening. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think what you're doing is amazing and I look forward to seeing it grow and develop. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're new to the show, I hope you will check out my previous interviews. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For the show notes, please head over to our website, womeninfinancepodcast.com. Thanks again and until next time, keep well. All opinions expressed by Andrea and her guests are solely personal opinions and do not reflect the opinion of any respective organization. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions.